Hi, welcome to Artwork, Fab NYC's podcast, which looks at the various ways that art works in the real world. I'm Ryan Gillum, the executive director of Fab NYC and Downtown Art, and I'm really excited to host my first podcast for Fab NYC. So I've invited Atwe and Elizabeth to be here in a conversation today, and I'm going to give you a little background on them. Uh, Atwe Ramos Fermin is an artist, educator, and cultural producer based in the Bronx. He's been the director of programs and community engagement at the Laundromat Project since 2015. As an artist, Atwe uses a combination of documentary and visual arts practices. His work is conceptually driven, research-based, and site-specific. His practice is guided by a deep curiosity to investigate the built environment and urban public space. Adwe has organized projects and made presentations at a security guard training school in tribute to Fashion Moda, community centers, churches, restaurants, laundromats, as well as galleries and museums. He's mentored young adults at the Center for Urban Pedagogy and the Bronx Museum of the Arts, where he also served as curator of education. Atwe has also participated in the Elizabeth Foundation for the Arts Shift Residency and the Laundromat Project's Create Change Public Art Residency. He received a BA from the University of Puerto Rico and his MFA from St. Juiced Art and Design Academy. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Hamby, works between the studio, the classroom, and the city. She's an artist who works as the acting director of health equity and all policies at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Using drawing, installation, and participatory workshops, she explores the dynamics of place and the rhythms of everyday experience. Elizabeth has worked with museums, nonprofits, and city agencies on projects related to the ways that everyday people interact with the patterns and processes that shape the built environment and urban public space. Her work has been included in exhibitions at the Brooklyn Children's Museum and the Museum of City of New York, and was presented in a solo exhibition at Casita Maria Center for Arts and Education. Elizabeth holds degrees from Parsons School of Design and Eugene Lang College. She lives and works in the Bronx. Atwe and Elizabeth are also the co-founders of Meta Local Collaborative, a Bronx-based collective, and Boogie Down Rides, a bicycling and art project celebrating cycling in the Bronx. They are artists and educators working together to investigate the dynamics of urban space explore the histories of buildings and neighborhoods, and trace the flows of people, ideas, and products. So thanks so much for coming out in the snow. <laughs> thanks for having us. <laughs> I'm really glad you're here. Uh, so you just heard me do formal biographies, um, <laughs> but is there anything else that you often like to tell people when they're getting to know you or asking you what you do? Well. Um, one of the things that I try to share uh, with folks when talking about kind of who I am and how I work and how those things fit together um, is that an artist is the, art is the kind of easiest way of describing um, what I see as a really complex project of being and working in the world. Um, I, I think that we live in times where there's such a strong urge to, uh, to make things one thing or the other, to be black or white. Um, and so I try to work in a way that blurs the lines, um, that, that kind of insists on complexity, um, and, and doesn't fit neatly into, into one box or another. Um, that being said, I really like working uh, in spaces that are non-traditional art spaces. Um, I, like, uh, I like kind of embedding myself and locating myself there um, because often what I find in those places is there's actually lots of other people like me Mm. Um, lots of people who are artists uh, who are working in city agencies, uh, in nonprofit organizations, in museums. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's something that they're very loud and proud about. And sometimes that's something that they've felt that they have to kind of keep under wraps for the, uh, for the purposes of, you know, maintaining their, their ability to do their work. 
Um, and so I, I really, um, I really think of, I think of myself as an artist at work. Um, and, and I think about work as something that happens all the time. Um, so yeah, that's, that's maybe between the lines of my bio. <laughs> yeah, no, actually that, that connects up with the interview that I read that you did, and you said, I'm an artist and. Mm -hmm. And I related to that very powerfully myself about um, how you collect all your identities under one umbrella when what you were taught about being an artist had limitations. Um, so what yeah. do you think about that artist and? Oh, that's, uh, that's something I think all the time. You know, uh, and this is the thing, you know, uh, we, I mean, I, let me speak for myself. Um, when I think about being an artist, sometimes, depending what spaces I am, I, I'm, I'm at, uh, you know, I'm like, should I identify myself as an artist first? Mm -hmm. uh, even though that's, that's actually part of who I am, right. because there's so many uh, assumptions and misconceptions, and you know, and with 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 some some of that uh, fears and like misunderstandings about what an artist mm -hmm. you know is and do. Um, so sometimes I'm hesitant to say it, um, depending on where I am at and all of that. So um, it's interesting to think about it. You know, no, let's claim that and be. Up front, and you know, that's okay. It's okay <laughs> to be an artist. <laughs> Don't have to be secret artists. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I'm working that through here in my my new job as executive director. So I, I really. But I think about you, Elizabeth, in a government agency. I mean, that's Atwe and I are both working within arts organizations and staying pretty close to the cultural world, but. What's that like? What's different about that? Well, I should say, so I work in a government agency, but I think I work in a very special place in a government agency. And I think that, you know, in New York City right now, um, and how New York City is kind of positioning itself in the national uh, conversation about governments, you know, what should government be and how should government um, work with the people that it serves, um, you know, I think that that I I'm very lucky to work in a, a little node of, of government that's really about changing government and and how mm. municipal government works. Um, so, you know, although I do work in government and and deal with the many many challenges that that um, that that includes, I think that I also work in a place that is, you know, intentionally created to change to change the way that bureaucracies work and um, that that agencies work and and more specifically work together, um, which in some ways I think is unique to the administration that we have in New York City right now, um, and is certainly you know really key to how. Yeah, you know, like how the, how the administration is positioning itself um, in response, you know, to the federal government and and other kind of larger players. So, um, and how we're all positioning ourselves in response to the federal government? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, you know, I, I work in the Center for Health Equity, which has an explicit mission to address and undo racism, um, which you know at a time when we're seeing, yeah. you know, explicit uh, support of elected, potential elected officials who are blatantly mm. racist. Um, I think, you know, there really is a, a call to stand in contrast to that. Um, and so it, it might be different if I was working in government in a different time right. um, and certainly in a different place. Um, and so... It's kind of the government and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, so just to get people grounded a little bit about uh, your work, can you each describe maybe a current project or a recent project just um, so we see the work in practice? Should I say uh, Boogie Sure. Maybe? Okay. So um, my background is photography and video. Uh, it's something that I actually rarely talk about 
because I'm not that active in that specific, you know, uh, practice anymore. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll go back and forth. So uh-huh. it's always like love and hate kind of thing, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. But, um, you know, uh, we started um, a biking project uh, in the Bronx um, 2012, something like that, uh, where, you know, we were thinking about uh, how can an art practice be in the world and be in conversation with the world uh, around us, you know, in a bigger uh, picture kind of thing. So we thought about biking as a way to, you know, uh, talk about things that we not normally would talk about in the Bronx specifically. So it's called Boogie Down Rides, um, where, you know, the idea is that we get a group of people together uh, and we have thematic rides. And, you know, connecting within the Bronx, different neighborhoods and different places, uh, but also to the Bronx and from the Bronx. So, you know, we explore, for example, we have a, a, a ride that we call the Six Borough bike the, ride. The Six Borough? Yeah. You know, there's five boroughs in New York. Oh, so, the Six Borough. Oh, got it. So, but the, the Six Borough is the water. You know, we kind of talk, ah. think about it as the water. So we have a, and it's more of an environmental justice uh, bike ride where we explore uh, the history of industry and community activism. Um, and then we just kind of go through different places along the Bronx River, the East River, you know, and the Bronx Kill. So, you know, we kind of have uh, made a practice of having conversations with different people. And uh, so, you know, that's... So are people signing up and biking with you? Is yes. That- yeah. Uh-huh. And who, who, who's going? How big a group are you taking on? Who's part of it? It varies, you know, um, depending on the, the theme and, you know, and uh, we have a core group of people that come, most, you know, the friends now. Um, and it's a mixed group of folks that are from the Bronx, mm-hmm. but also people that come from other boroughs as well. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of a, an ongoing project. And we, you know... When we started, uh, we were thinking about, you know, biking as an art practice. Yeah. You know, as a... As I read a, that. I read bicycling is an art form. And I was like, okay, I think <laughs> I need to think about this a little more. <laughs> but I started thinking about... Uh, maybe I was getting it a little bit by understanding the way that by being on a bike, you're in an unusual kind of framing. Uh, you're seeing the environment and moving through it in a way that's, you know, well... I don't bike that often, so for me, it's a rare experience. Yeah, but and, and it's not an is issue. Is that part of? I'm sorry. Is that I mean, is that part of my starting to get what bicycling as an art form is kind of the way that you're experiencing your environment, and therefore, uh, sort of a change perspective and and how you're participating. Anyway, yeah. maybe yeah. you should say some more about. <laughs> uh, you want to say something, Liz? Sure. I mean, I, I think <laughs> one of the things about biking that's really exciting is that you're both experiencing and producing space. Um, So, you know, in New York City, our streets and sidewalks make up our largest shared public space. Um, You know, and I I like to do a little, you know, cocktail party uh, quiz about that. You know, you ask people, you know, what do you think is the largest public space in New York City? And people will go through and name every park in the city. Um, But the truth is, it's our streets and sidewalks. Um, And so, you know, thinking about streets and sidewalks as our kind of shared public rooms um, and and how we make that sense of space legible. Uh, The thing that a bicycle can do that a car kind of is too enclosed and goes too fast for um, and walking, I mean, I think walking is, is an incredible practice and there's a lot of really great art that has been made um, about walking. But I think biking, by adding this kind of simple machine, um, you can A, cover a lot more distance um, and B, you, you can experience um, that kind of public space, public room in a different way. Um, and so this idea... In, in, in the Bronx was particularly resonant because in, in 2012 and, and to a certain extent still today, the Bronx um, is not terribly friendly to bicycling. And so the only way um, or, or one of the only ways to really have that experience is to, to pull a bunch of people together, to do it together. Um, so you create the opportunity 
uh, of, of that experience by assembling a group that makes it safe, that makes it possible, that makes it accessible. Um, and, and there was something about that gesture that, that we found compelling mm -hmm. as, as a practice um, and, and ultimately as a form, right, as an art form. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and pushing a little bit the boundaries of, okay, I'm not gonna make a painting or a photo of a bike and put it on the walls, like, well, <laughs> the bike is meant to be used, so let's kind of flip that on its head and let's, okay, while, while we're producing, you know, uh, biking uh, is a way of producing that, um, that practice, you know. Oh, that's great, that's great. Um, I was, so Boogie Down Rides relates to Boogie Down Boulevard or Boogie? Boogie on, boogie the, on boulevard. the Boulevard. Boogie yes. on the Boulevard, yes. <laughs> um, so actually, so, 2012, when we were getting started to think about the, the biking project, uh, Liz and I worked together uh, for a few months and uh, to kind of talk to people that were more equipped and they're, they know better than you know uh, the biking world than us, uh, and kind of you know put kind of a uh, an advisory uh, panel. Of, we never had a name for it, so we just talked to people that we knew that knew more than us, and you know, uh, activists, Bronx activists, um, they were the health department actually, uh, other nonprofits, you know, and by while having conversations around what this could be, um, we learned that there used to be this tradition in the Bronx in the early 1990s that the borough president back then, uh, Fernando Ferrer, I think it, it was, um, started an initiative where he will close the Grand Concourse for cars. He, it was called Car Free Sundays on the Grand Concourse. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was every Sunday, pretty much the whole day, or a bunch of, you know, a, a big chunk of time. And it was from July until, until November. So wow. there were no cars, and pretty much it was like an open street uh, event where anyone could take ownership of the street and make that a public space. You know, the, the, the issue with having, a, it's one of the biggest boulevards in the city. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's most of the time is a lot of cars, you know, that's their main purpose for it. So uh, it became this very important thing in people's memories. Oh, I remember when I was a kid, I, huh. I used to go to this thing uh, that used to happen every Sunday. Um, I remember my mom, you know, so it was like, oh, we learned that. And uh, well, we're talking to folks and pretty much we're like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we do that again? <laughs> you know, because what happened then was uh, mid-19, like around 1995, the mayor of the city decided that he, well, that was not going to be a priority. Um, so that was Giuliani's time mm -hmm. and he shut it down. Um, one of the excuses for that was to say this is one of the uh, ways that emergency vehicles need to move up and down, and we can't have that. So, you know, that happened, and then in the early uh, 2000s, around 2006, um, Transportation Alternatives, the uh, biking advocacy group, um, kind of took over a small chunk of the Grand Concourse around 170th Street. Uh, near the Bronx Lebanon Hospital. And they did a very small scale uh, closure where they actually invited people playing basketball and they had you know uh, aerobics and exercise and different kinds of things and people riding their bikes, of course. Um, and it was used as a campaign you know to bring attention to, to the use of the street. Yeah. So that, that was the last time that something like that happened. Uh, as far as I understand it, and with this vision. Um, and uh, so going back to 2012, when we learn about all this history, uh, we said, well, look, why don't we try to bring this back? And, uh, you know, people got excited about the idea. And, you know, we started collecting petitions and, you know, knocking on people's doors and kind of to understand uh, if there was actually a desire bigger than the folks that we talked to, um, you know, and that's kind of how things uh, mm -hmm. began. You want to add more? I just don't want to. 
I can't remember how many petition signatures we collected. <laughs> and what happened? I, mean, I, uh, I saw photos, but I wasn't <laughs> there personally. So what, what happened this past summer when you were doing that? So this past summer was the longest boogie on the boulevard, like, uh, you know, distance mileage wise that we've ever created. It was almost a full mile of the wow. Grand Concourse, which was an incredible achievement. Um, and, and, you know, in the kind of fourth year of doing this project, um, we kind of finally got to the place where people, um, people recognized that this was a thing that happens in our community again. This is something that we should expect. This is something that we can look forward to. This is something that we can be a part of. Um, and I think that that was something that was really special. Um, we've also been very lucky that uh, Vanessa Gibson, one of the elected officials who represents that area, has totally taken this on. Um, I, I heard her give testimony about something completely unrelated, and she said, and then at Bookie on the Boulevard, it's <laughs> like, you know, we've really arrived um, when, when this is, you know, something that has become so woven into the fabric of the community. That's um, great. It's really great. But seeing, you know, seeing kids out on skateboards and bicycles and people just hanging out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to me how um, unusual it is these days to just have an opportunity to just hang out um, and, and be with people that you don't necessarily normally encounter. Yeah, and, and one thing just to add, you know, because um, yeah. the the way that it works, um, and I think one of the successful aspects of the of this project is that we're, it's not we're doing everything. <laughs> you know, we work in uh, partnership with a lot of different organizations that are, some of them are actually there uh, directly on the concourse. Um, and, you know, we uh, have worked um, to develop a way for folks to take ownership of segments of the concourse. Mm -hmm. So. You know, the Bronx Museum takes one part, Bronx Works, um, uh, VX Arts Factory, so, and there's other organizations. Um, you know, so it's not like, uh, what, what I like about that is that different folks ima ima reimagine the street in a different way, and that's what, mm -hmm. that was the purpose originally. So, okay, why, have we, why do we have to think about the street as the car only place? You know, why is that uh, something? that we have accepted, you know, is, oh, you know, we have to rethink the use of public so we have to reclaim our streets. So, you know, having different folks take ownership of that, it's been great, you know, it's been great to see the different ways in which each one of the organizations, uh, you know, do different things there. Yeah, that's really, uh, yeah, it's the only way to do something kind of as big, right? You can't, you have to have partners and you have to have <laughs> local partners and um, you can't generate the kind of support you need to pull off something that extensive without them. They're critical. Um, I was just going to notice that, um, that history is something that seems to inform the work, and it certainly informs the work that I do. Um, and I was thinking also about your Young Lords project. Mm. Um, and I, so I was just, how do you using history as sort of a source or as a place to develop dialogue, do you feel that is something that comes up a lot in the work that you're doing? Mm, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Want to talk about that? <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a firm believer that, um, you know, we, we come from somewhere. You know, there's, there's a lineage and there's a history uh, to everything we do, uh, it's not like oh, I'm gonna, I'm I'm here, I'm in a bubble, I'm not connected to anything. Um, so I, it's important for me to recognize um, and learn from, and uh, you know, kind of reimagine sometimes. But acknowledging that you know the importance of who has been here that had allowed, in, in this, John Lords, for example, you know, in this case, allowed a lot of the things for me, you know, that I can, that I uh, enjoy and uh, uh, learn from, you know, uh, let me, let so me So you're placing history in a community, <laughs> in a specific community. So, so part of when, because your work is place-based. 
Um, right, right. And, you know, it's very, very much acknowledging that history and honoring it and, you know, taking that as the starting point. Uh, making those connections is very important. Uh, we have a very short-term memory. I mean, I, uh, our society, maybe, you know. Uh, so it's important to stand on someone else's shoulder mm -hmm. and not forgetting that. Um, but also, it's not only about the past. It's, right. it's, we're standing on the shoulders to continue or do something, you know. It's right. not um, uh, a, a melancholic or something like that. Right. It's emotional. Um, but it's more about um, moving forward, but not I've, forgetting. I've frequently found that um, talking about history, history and in place, I mean, uh, I'm the co-founder of Lower East Side History Month, which is a little bit like the project you're talking about. It's sort of it's spread out. It's involved lots and lots of organizations. We just kind of do some coordinating around it, but everybody decides how to participate. Um, but it's now a thing. It's now like, oh, May actually is Lower East Side History Month. You know, we're heading into year five of that. But when sometimes when you're having a, 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 a complicated subject, by being able to use a historical event as kind of, oh, well, let's look at this history that we all share, that we're all connected with, and then have a conversation. Um, people really connect really fast to the past and the present, but almost because it's in the past, it allows us to look at an actual series of events um, or something that happened and, uh, and sort of, I think, bring a little more openness to whatever the dialogue is going to be because maybe there's a little safety in it having happened in the past and that's how we're starting the dialogue. Mm. So I, I've sometimes felt like that's how I'm using history in work to generate a conversation now. Does that relate to anything that you do? Yeah, so I wanted to share a project that I just finished, mm -hmm. um, which is actually a Dungeons and Dragons style oh. <laughs> adventure game uh, called What Creates Health, Race, Place, and Public Space. Um, and, you know, thinking about this idea that uh, place and history and our kind of experience of, of the contemporary place um, are, are so deeply intertwined, um, I wanted to take advantage of the fact that I work with a lot of really smart public health researchers and, and epidemiologists and to try to make some of the things that they know um, about people um, and, the, and the health and wellness of people and the things that I know um, about urban planning and, and policy and, and places and, and bring that into a format that would be legible. Because I think, you know, to your point, when we uh, organize around history, uh, this this challenge of of legibility and and of stories that are complex enough that they can contain the real complexity of the mm -hmm. past, mm -hmm. but are simple enough that we can wrap our little brains around them, I think is is an interesting and a rich challenge. Um, and so my colleagues and I. Were, had, had been kind of really wrestling around this stuff for, for a while. And we said, okay, you know, so what is the format that we could use to, to really lay some of this stuff out? And we were like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> 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 Role-playing games are the way to go here. Um, and, and what we were excited about was the ability to, to use narrative, um, but also to use kind of movement um, on a, a game board. So we used three episodes uh, from New York City history um, to help understand why some neighborhoods in New York um, are, are harder to, for people. In some neighborhoods, it's harder for people to live a long and healthy life than it is in others. And so we looked at three kind of episodes from the 1930s to the present day to illuminate that. Um, so when we, uh, when we looked at the 1930s um, from a kind of place and policy standpoint, you know, we talked about redlining mm -hmm. um, and how, you know, folks' ability to get a mortgage 
for their home uh, was really determined by um, by this this very racist um, federal policy. Um, and at the same time, from a public health standpoint, we looked at uh, tuberculosis um, and how those same built environments and, and uh, Im- in impacts on built environments were mm. intertwining uh, with this infectious disease and, and yeah. what that, how those things played into one another. And then we kind of fast forwarded into the 1970s to think about disinvestment in the public realm due to the fiscal crisis. Um, and so we thought about firehouses being removed from neighborhoods and the, you know, kind of Bronx is burning. But, you know, the Bronx wasn't the only place that was burning in those no, times. Those firehouses were being removed from a lot of different parts of the city. Um, and and uh, from a... Um, from a public health standpoint, um, that was the era when we started to, to have this real crisis around chronic disease. Um, so thinking about, you know, heart disease, for example, and diabetes, like that's that's when the epidemic that we're still dealing with today in terms of those diseases really came about. Um, and then we took a, a third speeding up fast forward um, into the 2000s and looking at stop and frisk and again how some neighborhoods had different experiences than others um, and and from a public health standpoint really thought about mental health um, and substance abuse and how those things were intertwined um, and and you know we we've had a couple chances to play the game uh, with with different folks uh, over the last couple months. And and what's been exciting about it is how how within this these worlds that that we've created, uh, people almost instinctively uh, push back against uh, what is happening and say, you know, okay, hold on, you know, how are we gonna, how are we gonna organize? How are we gonna like collectively come together to, uh, to improve the these kind of you know, temporary homes that we have for the purposes of this game. Um, and I think it's very exciting to, uh, to notice that that, that that instinct to, um, to not accept these um, policy and planning decisions as well as, you know, the, the many challenges that we face in, in health and wellness as inevitable, right? History is not deterministic. Um, and, you know, I, I think that creating a space to kind of explore that through play, um, serious play, mm-hmm. um, has, it's been a very exciting project for me. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so you all work separately, but you also collaborate. Yeah. And you're pretty close. Um, <laughs> and so I have a little bit of that situation with Mike here, who's over here doing our sound engineering, um, that we uh, collaborate. And I know that sometimes, you know, work changes. It, it changes your work to be in a collaborative. So I was just wondering, how is your collaborative work, like, what happens that's the third extra thing that comes together when you work together? What happens? The, the well, what I'm saying is that there's the two of you, and then right. when you get together, uh, yeah. there's something else <laughs> that also enters the work. And yeah. I'm wondering if you have any sense of how how it changes because you're working together. Mm. I mean, I just to kind of start with the, the most basic, I think that we have very different strengths. Um, I think that I am a planner and a strategist um, and someone who likes to make things more complicated than they are. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and Atway is someone who likes to and is good at get things done um, and, and, you know, put together the list and the process and, and really execute. Um, and so in some ways, I feel very lucky that, that something that is um, a, a weakness of mine, right, which is implementation... <laughs> <laughs> so good at ideas um, that that I'm able to work with someone who who has the strength uh, has a strength towards execution, you know. And um, it, it's it's 
I think that I'm very, um, I'm very extroverted. You know, I have a big personality and, and I like to be in the spotlight and Atue is a little more quiet, a little more, uh, considered, um, and, and, (laughs) you know, but, but really is the person who gets things done. (laughs) I'm more pragmatic, Mm -hmm. I think. And Mm -hmm. I was like, so how are we going to do this actually? Uh You know? Um, so we're always pushing back at each other. And uh, one thing that I appreciate is that we don't take things personally because things can get tense sometimes. Yeah. Um, and that's okay. That's part of the process. Um, but we are very passionate about getting uh, the whatever project we're working on in the best way we can. So we understand that that's a bigger goal. So whatever things we, you know, might not agreed upon or whatever, you know, we kind of know that it's about getting to that uh, place, you know? Um, so, but also we trust each other uh, and respect each other's ideas. So it's very important that level. So we, we know that whenever we're angry or whatever, you know, we're coming from a place of care. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's something very important as well. Because it's, um, you know, it's hard. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think collaboration is always hard, and then it's harder when you're living with your collaborator <laughs> <laughs> to decide when you're not collaborating and when you are, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you actually are, are allowed to be off. <laughs> um, I, I do know that, you know, in my work with Mike, that what happens to my writing or what happens to... Uh, the way that I'm directing is affected so much by the lyricism of his music. And so I think I move to a more poetic place or what he's taught me also is kind of the power of silence. Um, How I can sometimes just pull the words out and actually we could have just a little bit of sound or music, but uh, that things can be sustained in the performances that we create. Um, around that. Mm. So uh, I was wondering if there's anything that you've kind of added to your own practice that came out of collaborating. Mm. I mean, I, so um, I liked Atoy's work before I liked him. (laughs) 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 Um, And there, you know, having that kind of art crush on someone, I, I felt like he was doing things that I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and that was really exciting to me. Um, you know, the first time that we met, um, that he doesn't remember, <laughs> uh, was when Atwe did the Fashion Moda project, you know, and so he created this art exhibition in this space that was a security guard training school and a hair braiding salon. And there was so much about that that I thought was so exciting. Um, This kind of embedding art into these like very quotidian spaces. Um, And I just, I loved that. And I loved Mm -hmm. the the, the way that he did it and the way that he included everyone um, in doing that. Um, and so, you know, when we started working together and I had a chance to kind of be a part of that with him, you know, the first, the first project that we did together uh, was when Atue was in an exhibition at um, Tayaboriqua in East Harlem. Uh, and it was about the food environment uh, in, in East Harlem. And he invited me, I was teaching uh, in an after-school program at the Museum of the City of New York at the time. And he invited me and my students to be a part of his exhibition. And that is just totally how he works and what <laughs> he does. And, um, and I was just so excited to be a part of that um, with him. In, uh I'm learning things today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that um, things I've taken, you know, uh, working with Liz, um, she cares a lot about aesthetics, uh, and that's an important thing, you know, making art. And 
I do care about aesthetics, but uh, I think that I'm more aware and careful when I'm doing my projects and, you know, like on my own, like things that I've learned from. So I think that's one thing I can say that we, uh, that I've taken from, borrowed <laughs> from Liz in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also uh, this idea of generosity, you know, uh, as well, I think it's very, it's something that I, I think about a lot. Um, and having spaces for other folks to participate, um, regardless if they're artists or not, or, you know, depending on whatever project it is. So, so yeah, I mean, I think that um, some of the, the things about teaching and being an educator as well, because um, we met through museum education, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that exhibition that I don't remember <laughs> that she was there. Um, it, was a, it was a busy day. Um, so, yeah, so this idea of, you know, uh, giving importance and uh, respecting other people's voices in a project that is inclusive of others, I think something that also Liz thinks about, and I care about that, too. How do you each think your backgrounds, your growing up years, uh, like show themselves in the work that you do now? So um, I grew up moving around almost constantly. And I was always trying to kind of locate myself in a place. Um, And so having a practice that is about... um, understanding a place, what it is, how it works, how it came to be, really emerged from, you know, growing up being in in almost constant motion. Um, And I think um, the other other piece um, about my background, is coming from the South, you know, a a place that is deeply cultural um, and and, uh, understanding myself as a person who comes from a a specific culture that that has um, codes and words and meanings and complexities and problematic aspects and, and all those things. Um, I think has made me excited about working with people whose cultures are different than mine um, and understanding the resonances between those cultures um, and then the the differences in them as well. I grew up in the theater, like literally. Um, And my father used to be a uh, light design in Puerto Rico. Uh, for the biggest theater there, uh, that what was the biggest theater there um, uh, the, in the, at the University of Puerto Rico. Uh, it was a beautiful theater that is still up, uh, built in the 1930s. And, you know, all the big companies and whatever came to Puerto Rico, actually, that was a place. So I literally was crawling on the... Uh, <laughs> on the stage. <laughs> um, my mom actually used to be working, she used to work at a uh, theater also, um, ma- do maintenance, but also kind of uh, uh, fixing costumes and things like that. That's how they met. Um, huh. But for me, thinking about the way that theater is very collaborative, hmm. um, and theater is, you know, you, ha- you need a group of people Otherwise, it's not going to work. And sometimes those people are behind the scenes. Sometimes those, those folks are on stage. Um, but it's the collective that holds that together. Um, so I think one thing that I'm not involved with theater at all now, uh, but thinking that's maybe somewhere in the back of my mind um, when I work, when I work. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's something. There's something there. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> I was going to say um, that uh, 
well, I have a big birthday coming up soon. I'm trying to get myself geared up for dealing with it, you know, as you get older. Um, but, you know, when you, when you spend more time reflecting or sort of looking back at what all the things happened that got you where you are here, it's pretty clear that life is not a straight line. <laughs> yeah. And, and there are different moments in which I can almost get to a particular event that that changed things. And sometimes it was because it was a real challenge that I didn't know how to go forward. And so I actually had to sit and almost reorient myself. And yet sometimes the direction it headed me in was the direction I should have been going in. It was sort of like, um, I want to say, a gift out of a, a challenge in a way. Do you have any experiences like that around around work you've done or any moments that you sort of credit with a aha, oh, I'm, I, I didn't know what I was doing and that was a hard moment, but it got me here. So when I uh, was finishing up art school, my thesis advisor sat me down and said, do you know what urban planning is? And I said, nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she said, you know, that, that's your that's what you're interested in that's that like that is a big part of what you what you're doing and how you're working um and these ideas that you're struggling to express um through this kind of fine art practice um and i didn't quite know what to do with that but um fortunately for me um her husband was an urban planner and he needed an assistant um, and he was, probably still is, an extremely old school guy who would do zoning calculations by pencil. Um, and so literally the first part of my job was taking the things that he had written in pencil and typing them. Huh. Um, but what was cool about that is, you know, I'm a very experiential learner and that created a space for me to like literally understand how all of these equations that go into regulating the built environment work. Um, so translating his pencil calculations, drawings into, you know, the way that these things are exchanged contemporarily through things made on the computer um, was, was an incredible opportunity for me to, uh, to really, you know, learn learn something that had been inherent in my work all along, but that I hadn't known about. Um, and I think also, you know, having him be married to an artist kept me from pursuing a more traditional urban planning path. Um, and, and he said, you know, whatever you do, don't go to planning school. <laughs> don't, don't do that, because um, they'll kill your soul. Um, no. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but to be able to kind of experientially become fluent in those uh, kind of tools and tactics, um, A, helped me understand something about the built environment um, that I hadn't understood before, but, but also helped me understand something about how to bring people together to think collectively about the future, um, which I also hadn't developed exactly that skill set yet. Um, and so, I mean, I feel very privileged that that, that opportunity um, appeared to me mm. because I never, I never wanted to be a studio artist. Um, I never wanted to sit by myself and make stuff all day. I always wanted to be embedded in other places and other practices and with people. But there was a gap between what I knew from my training um, and the kind of possibilities that I could see as a result of that training um, and like the, the work that I wanted to do in the world, the way that I wanted to be in the world. Um, and I'm very grateful for the fact that, you know, I got that little nudge that, that uh, helped me onto that, onto that path. But I, you know, like you said, at, at the time, 
It's like just gonna keep putting one foot in front of the other and hope that I'm headed in the right direction. Um, because it, you know, you you don't know, but you look back and and it the golden thread is apparent, you know, in hindsight. So uh, there's several moments, but I think one of the ones. Um, I spent some time in, in the Netherlands uh, studying there, uh, and I was doing my uh, MFA in photography and all the things. Um, but I really had a hard time <laughs> adjusting. I, uh, you know, I've come from the Caribbean. This is a very different country, and you know, trying to th- while thinking about photography um, and its impact in the world and documentary photography and how that works and all of that, the complications and all the things around that. Um, you know, I was like, so I don't know if the, for me, the best thing to do is take a photo and put it on the wall or have a book or a gallery or whatever. Um, I'm interested in kind of breaking away from that. Um, and, and while at the same time, you know, uh, experiencing, you know, direct racism without, you know, the first time I ever like consciously like, wait, oh, what's happening? <laughs> uh, and understanding that uh, as an immigrant there and, and kind of putting those two together, I was really uh, trying to find a way to express anger and all of the things. And photography was not it, even though I was in the photography program. So, I was also lucky to um, have good advisors there. I was like, well, maybe that's not what you want to do, and that's okay. Maybe you think about some other things. Um, and, you know, that kind of led me. That's why I was talking about the love and hate relationship with photography that mm-hmm. I have. Uh, because, of, you know, I always feel like art is never enough, even though it is, you know? Um, so having a moment where... Uh, my for my final for my okay (laughs) having the moment for uh, my final project where I was looking at the experience of being an immigrant there even though with certain level of privilege but uh, because I was a student you know was not necessarily you know uh, I was a different kind of immigrant Um, but at the same time facing similar things that any other immigrant was facing there and struggling with being the only student of color in that place (laughs) uh, at that moment, not growing there and all the things. So uh, I decided not to do photography. So kind of, uh, and it was a conscious decision then, and I kind of see how now it, um, it manifests itself in the way that I work, that I always try to connect with other things outside of art. You know, like what are the connections that art can make with the real world, with real issues, with real, you know. So really using art, of course, because that's my my strength and what I do, but always trying to find ways to connect um, outside of that, so. That's great. In fact, that just about takes us full circle about, you know, how art kind of can work out in the real world, um, how I think we're all a little interested in making some changes. I'm going to ask you just kind of one last thing. We're living in a pretty challenging time um, in our country uh, and uh, on many fronts. It's not that there haven't been challenging times all along, but I think uh, we're feeling it pretty powerfully. And I, and I wonder just what gives you hope these days? I think that there's something about being focused. I was chatting the other day about this um, that I never thought of before. And it's a collective focus I can sense, um, at least in certain circles. (laughs) Not everyone feels this way. about this, the urgency of um, 
finding ways to stick together and focus on and fighting back, you know, uh, these real threats that are uh, scary. Um, so it gives me hope to see a lot of people uh, from all types of walks of life and backgrounds and disciplines, you know, thinking about this consciously and trying to, you know, uh, find ways to connect. Um, because that's the only way we can move forward. And, you know, I, that's kind of what gives me hope. Think about this cross-sector uh, interconnectedness and inter interdependence uh, that is going to keep us alive. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like there in the last year has been a clarity to conversations about social change that um, I hadn't heard in a while. And I guess it's, I've, I've actually been thinking about this a lot. You know, I, I think that, that the way that progressive movements work and, and progressive social change works is you know, there are moments of clarity and then there are, you know, wide moments of less clarity, <laughs> I guess. And and to understand those things, I've really started to understand those things as a, as a continuum um, and, and as a cycle and, and things like that. And so I, um, I think that in the last year and really even before before the last year, I have started noticing the way that young people are organizing these days. And they're so smart. Um, and they're so on the ball in the way, in a way that I don't think that I was smart or on the ball when I was their age. And I'm so impressed by that. Um, and, and that gives me a lot of hope. Um, I also think that there are um, things happening at, at, at very small scales. Um, you know, people getting together with other people once a week to talk about the latest uh, news of what's going on in the country and, and doing small things or big things together um, to address those, that I think is something really important that's that's happening right now, and um, you know, it, it's something that gives me a lot of hope for the future. I mean, that being said, I, it's not enough, um, and I think that there's a lot uh, there's a lot of work to be done, um, and and there's a lot. I think that a lot more of us need to be thinking about what we can do to put to really put ourselves on the line to really ourselves in uncomfortable spaces um, and and to directly confront some of the really terrifying stuff that's that's going on but you know my dad said to me uh, at the at the beginning of um, you know this this most recent administration he said you know courage is a muscle um, and the way that you develop the ability to do big, courageous things is by starting with small, courageous things. Um, and I've seen a lot of people starting to do those small, courageous things. Um, and I think the challenge and the opportunity is not that we continue to do small, courageous things, but that we grow those small, courageous things into bigger and bigger acts of courage um, that are required to, to really confront um, the, the terrifying things that, that are happening around us. On that hopeful note, <laughs> no, but on that, it's a, it's a great reminder. Um, and uh, actually, it is hopeful to me. Uh, I agree with your perceptions, and, and, uh, and I also see that kind of movement. And it does need to grow. Uh, I mean, we need to get stronger, and we need to build our practices. But... Um, but it's, it's different than apathy. Um, it's not apathy at all. Right. 
So that's a, that's a hopeful right there. And uh, so I just want to thank you so much for taking the time coming out on this snowy day. And, uh, and I'm really looking forward to watching what both of you are doing in the future. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having for, us. Thanks for having us. <laughs> This is Ryan Gillum for Artwork, the Fab NYC podcast about how art works in the world. My guests were Atwe Ramos Fairman and Elizabeth Hamby. You can learn more about their work by checking out the links on our podcast page at fabnyc.org. Thanks to Michael Hickey, our podcast producer, the Fab NYC staff, Addison, Emilio, Dakota, KT, and Kim, and to you, our listeners. As always, our appreciation goes out to the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, New York City Department of Small Business Services, former City Council member Rosie Mendez, the New York State Council on the Arts, and Con Edison for supporting Fab NYC programs. Thanks for listening.